The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. We didn't do a controlled analysis, controlling for all the potential confounders, but mortality was higher for those who did not receive thiamine as compared to those who did receive thiamine. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled Thiamine Supplementation in Patients with Alcohol Use Disorder Presenting with Acute Critical Illness, a Nationwide Retrospective Observational Study. Joining us is the senior author, Dr. Michael Donino. He's an attending physician in the Department of Emergency Medicine and the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital. His clinical practice spans both the ICU and the emergency department. He also has a long-term interest in thiamine deficiency and has written multiple papers on the topic. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. I found this article fascinating because as I reflect on my long career, I didn't worry about thiamine very much for many years. I've been thinking about it a lot more over about the last 10 to 15 years. And I always just assumed that uh, if we gave patients a banana bag in the ER, that took care of thiamine. I've learned that thiamine deficiency presents quite often when I see patients as a hospitalist. Sometimes it's after they've been in the ICU. Sometimes it's direct admissions to uh, the hospital. So let's go over your study and why you thought to study the underuse of thiamine in alcohol use disorders. And maybe we could start by talking about the different ways thiamine deficiency presents. Sure. I had a longstanding interest in thiamine. It actually dates back to when I was a medical student and saw a case of, ultimately it was Wernicke's encephalopathy and some associated very, very components um, that I was peripherally involved with. And it was in a, a woman with hyperemesis gravidarum. And by the time it actually was diagnosed, it was actually quite advanced. And nobody really thought of thiamine because she didn't fit the mold of, uh, you know, that was traditionally associated with alcoholism. But in reality, you know, thiamine deficiency disorders are you know, a nutritional disorder. So that case got me interested. And then I ended up seeing a number of additional cases and describing, you know, this, what I would say is probably a variant of beriberi and GI berry, gastrointestinal beriberi, 
And I started realizing over time that some of these cases were being overlooked and the result of overlooking could be significant morbidity or even death. And on the flip side, the treatment is an inexpensive vitamin. And so that's, I think, what got me interested in this area. And so I have looked at this in classic deficiency states, but also some of, see if we can use it in other conditions in the ICU, um, which that is kind of more of emerging at this time. But that's kind of what got me interested. And then taking it from there to this current study, you know, the, the continued observation that, you know, these cases that they were slipping through, that there were people who had unrecognized Wernicke's until it was too, too late and whatnot. I thought that one way to get at this and look at this would be to see what the rates of people who are giving thiamine to alcoholics uh, or people with alcohol use disorders would be, because this is a population that is very high risk for thiamine deficiency for several reasons, and that most would agree should be receiving uh, thiamine, particularly when they're admitted to an intensive care unit setting. So I thought, why don't we look at what the rates are of thiamine delivered to this high-risk population, clearly in a, a critical ill state where there are you know, increased metabolism needs as well. Um, and so that's what sparked the idea of looking specifically at this population to illustrate the issue. So let's just go over the different ways it presents for people who uh, happen to see a patient. And I'll, I'll tell you the one that I've become very intrigued with recently but you mentioned Wernicke Korskopf. Then there's dryberry berry, and dryberry berry, as I understand, is uh, neuropathic. You know the terminology. It's interesting when you look in the history. You know some of these ter- the terminology has been used in different settings. So you have Wernicke's encephalopathy or the Wernicke Korsakoff syndrome. Uh, but then when you look at berry berry, there's actually a, a couple different forms. So if you look at neuritic berry berry, which is almost like it can ultimately progress to a form of quadriparesis. Um, oftentimes it's worse in the legs than the upper, but you can end up ultimately, you know, becoming, you know, almost uh, inability to, to, to walk or move your, move your upper extremities as well. We don't see that in the United States as much these days, but I have seen actually three or four cases over the years, and they've all had the same theme. Patients have been alcoholics, and then they've had an enabler. So as they've become weak, and unable to move, they somehow convinced somebody to continue to give them alcohol and they became worse and and worse. And for some odd reason, they also were preserved uh, in terms of developing Wernicke. So they maintained their mental status till the end. And then at some point they presented when they developed Wernicke's on top of that. Now, the interesting thing I'll say on that is that it can mimic Guillain-Barre. So all of those cases I described, which is just a small handful, three or four, were all labeled as Guillain-Barre cases at first. Um, so that's an interesting, very rare, but interesting presentation. Mm-hmm. Then the other presentation is kind of the cardiovascular beriberi, where they can get high output cardiac failure um, and often a, a, a high lactic acidosis. And you know they can present with edema or without edema. And that kind of got the terms of wet and dry beriberi. Sometimes dry beriberi is kind of interchanged with the neuritic, but if you look back in the early literature, the wet and dry basically just differentiated people who were presenting with edema or without edema in that, in that high output state. So those are kind of the classics 
also described a long time ago in the Annals of Internal Medicine was a potential new variant, which I termed gastrointestinal beriberi. And it was fascinating. We saw patients present with profound lactic acidosis with lactates. Uh, the original one was lactate of like 30, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. And at that time, this patient, we you know, took him off to the operating room thinking he had bowel ischemia. And it turned out that all he needed was uh, intravenous thiamine and his lactate you know, cleared. Now that particular patient came back multiple times. And then I was able to see a pattern in another patient and recognize that this is a potential presentation where people will present with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and profound lactic acidosis. I suspect it's just kind of along the continuum of, you know, this cardiovascular beriberi, but they have abdominal pain. But the reason I gave it this new name is so it could be brought to the attention of clinicians that you can present with a GI symptomatology and be in this um, profound lactic acidosis near death that, again, could be reversed just with intravenous thiamine. One of my passions is acid-base disorders. And we recently had a patient who had a significant lactic acidosis. Everybody's working them up for sepsis. It's clear that he doesn't have sepsis. And if, if, I, if I remember right, I think he had some GI disorders, but I had not thought through that. I said, let's just give him some thyme. And then we knew he had an alcohol use disorder and everything cleared up right away. So I think that's really important for us to remember that these patients who get labeled as sepsis just because of an in increased lactic acidosis, think about whether they have risk factors for thiamine deficiency. I completely agree. And just one other thing, because you mentioned that you have an interest in acid-base disorders. You know, the in early sepsis, yeah, as, as you know, so with the acid-base disorder, you can kind of get a mixed disorder where you have, you know, the metabolic acidosis, but then you sometimes can have, a, you know, the respiratory overcompensation. Well, then you see that with aspirin toxicity and whatnot. Um, we also describe that same pattern in patients with Wernicke. So they actually can get this distinctive mixed acid base disorder where they have a lactic acidosis. And then on top of that, they actually have a overcompensation from respiratory. So it's kind of an interesting pattern. Before we get to the article, there's the other thing that sometimes comes up is, should we measure thiamine levels or should we send a transketolase? Or is this just a clinical diagnosis and let's empirically give them thiamine? Well, two challenges. One is they take a substantial amount of time to turn around. So typically a thiamine level is a send out uh, for most laboratories and you're not going to get a result for days or maybe even a week. And by that time it's, it's too late. The second problem is, is that it's never been completely correlated exactly what level of thiamine would constitute, you know, um, a clinical, you know, deficiency state and whatnot. And there are some people who can have lower thiamine levels, but not be manifesting um, the clinical signs. So for all those reasons, I would say that it is a clinical diagnosis, particularly with, with respect to the levels. Well, I think it's just in general, a clinical diagnosis. Uh, I, I guess the one thing I was going to say is that every now and then you'll see someone get an MRI, not thinking about Wernicke's and they'll actually see the, um, what you can see there is classic bilateral thalamic lesions, um, even more so than the mammillary body atrophy. And in that case, that's another case where it kind of should ring a bell and say, whoop, this, this is probably Wernicke's. But the levels themselves is too delayed in terms of getting that information back. And I, I would argue that it's largely a clinical diagnosis. And the good news is that giving thiamine uh, is virtually no risk. Right. Yeah. The only reported risk with thiamine is like a one in 
250,000, you know, um, severe allergic reaction, which, you know, is just extraordinarily rare. I've, I've not, I've not actually seen it. Um, but um, yeah. And the other thing is it's the, the weird thing about, this, uh, you know, particularly when people just kind of reflexively re replace thiamine, which is a, is a good thing. It's, it's one of those odd diseases where sometimes people are treating it without even knowing that they've actually treated it. Um, so you can, so you can actually have people um, treated for a disease, you know, by an intern who did, they didn't even realize that they were doing so. So it's kind of interesting. Well, so I think we've really set up the rationale for why you wanted to study this. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the methods of trying to find out the underuse of thiamine in these patients, and then tell us a little bit about the results, and then we can discuss the implications. So what we decided to do, and we had done a small study just within our hospital. So what we did is we um, got the Cerner uh, Health Facts database, which is a large multi-center national representative data set. And so with that, we were able to then, um, we looked at patients who were admitted to the ICU. So again, this is a very sick population. And then we used ICD-9 and 10 codes to define whether they had alcohol use disorder or not. And we used some of the ones that have been validated in the literature um, that, that really key in on this population. Um, and then we also validated the, the codes that we used with our, our local population. Um, and and it, was, you know, it, was, it was able to reproduce very well those with alcohol use disorders. So with that, um, we defined a, a high-risk population and we look to see what the prevalence of replacement of, of thiamine would be. In addition to just kind of breaking people down by, we looked at those who were, again, they had alcohol use disorders, but we, we looked for what their, their admission diagnosis was in terms of alcohol withdrawal or, you know, having come in with septic shock or a traumatic brain injury or a combination of some of these things. We ultimately looked at and screened uh, over 19,000 uh, ICU encounters. We had a total of about 15,000 people included, and we broke them then down into the various into the various groups, as I mentioned. And when we looked at, I think the the key outcome was that the thiamine supplementation in those who presented overall was about 51 percent. For those with alcohol withdrawal, it was about 59%. So they're actively withdrawing. And what's interesting, if you looked at those who came in, let's say they came in in septic shock, that was 26%. Or if they came in with a TBI, that was 41%. So even lower than if you came in with, um, with alcohol withdrawal. Just for people who are listening, TBI is traumatic brain injury. Right. So overall, we found, you know, when you're looking at this overall number of 51%, this is um, quite low for a population that is extraordinarily high risk um, for these thiamine deficiency disorders. And particular when they're coming in, and, and sometimes when, when patients come in with like a, a traumatic brain injury, for example, as we just talked about, or, you know, uh, that's a classic one where if they're not replacing thiamine, some of these manifestations of what they're seeing could be Wernicke's that's being, that's going unrecognized. And likewise, if they're presenting with septic shock, you know, some of the, what they're seeing in terms of, you know, an, an acidosis or whatnot could be, you know, uh, related to thiamine, they wouldn't necessarily recognize it. So those were our overall findings from the study. I find this fascinating 
were there any differences in outcomes in the patients who got thiamine and the patients who didn't get thiamine? Well, I have to be careful there because we didn't do a controlled analysis, uh, you know, controlling for all the potential confounders. But yes, mortality was was higher for those who did not receive thiamine as compared to those who did receive thiamine. I did some research to understand this so, so that I could teach the students and residents I work with. Tell me if you've seen this number before. It said up to 80% of people with alcohol use disorders have thiamine deficiency when they present. I can't say that I'd have that number off the top of my head, but I would believe that it is quite high. I mean, I think yeah. the, you know, the, the, the problem with alcohol use disorders is that at base that, the, you know, there's, they're at nutritional risk, but right. there's a couple other factors too. Thiamine is stored in the liver. And if they have substantially advanced uh, alcohol use, they can have cirrhosis or liver injury and have trouble with their storage capacity. And then number three, alcoholics actually have some absorption issues that have been reported with thiamine. They can't absorb it as well, you know. And so you have this kind of this combination that just really sets them up. And that's why traditionally they've been the ones who, you know, are most on our consciousness um, in terms of, of thiamine deficiency disorders. I think I read that it only takes two or three weeks to become thiamine deficient. We need to be taking in thiamine all the time. Yeah, the first case of thiamine was actually reported by Carl Wernicke. Now, at that time, he didn't know that, um, that it was a thiamine deficiency disorder, but um, he, he did autopsy studies in the 1800s. And the first case was a woman who um, she tried to kill herself by ingesting some caustic material. It didn't actually work, but she ended up developing a pyloric stenosis. And she developed Wernicke's about three or four weeks right after that. Mm -hmm. And that is actually kind of the first study reported and the first case report to illustrate how long it takes to kind of kick in with your, your thiamine deficiency. Um, and she was the first case of Wernicke's. And since, since that time, it's also been reproduced that it only takes a few weeks, just like you said, to, to then deplete your thiamine levels. So let's get to the implications. We have hospitalists, we have primary care physicians, uh, I'm going to try to get people, emergency room physicians, ICU physicians to listen to this because I think that it pertains to all those people. What should we take home from this? What are, what are the implications of this? Because this is, I think, really important study. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the big message is, is that, you know, there are, that there's a, a low rate of thiamine repletion in a very high-risk population. And I think that, you know, that taking at face value is, you know, a, a wake up call to kind of be more attentive to these, um, to, to this population. But also, to me, it also brings up a larger potential issue is that if the rate of thiamine repletion is so low, or, you know, at 50%, for people at high risk for thiamine deficiency disorders, that we recognize, you know, alcoholism, you know, that when you see that, or alcohol use disorder, that kind of is a buzzword for physicians to, to, to link of, you know, thiamine, but there are other nutritional disorders that are probably even less recognized. And, you know, it, it is unfortunate. Every year, it seems there's a couple new case reports about thiamine deficiency in someone with hyperemesis gravidarum. But if you look back, those case reports date back to the early 1900s. It's nothing new. It's just that we don't associate it. So I think it's important to, to think of thiamine deficiency disorders within this population of the uh, alcohol use disorders, 
but basically anyone who comes in who's you know nutritionally deprived, and that can extend again to women with hyperemesis gravidarum and to um, to other things such as you know these days you see more of that with the gastric bypass um, mm-hmm. surgery and things like that. So just being more in tune, and then when when there is a a, a presentation that occurs in these populations we're more in tune to recognize it. So the woman with hyperemesis gravidarum who presents with mental status changes should immediately be thought of uh, in terms of a thiamine deficiency disorder. And, and finally, do you think it matters how much thiamine we give? I read, we tend to give fairly aggressive thiamine at our hospital, but I can't find any good data in the literature yeah. to say what the right dose is. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. So when I wrote an article a number of years ago, Myths and Misconceptions, uh, Wernicke's Encephalopathy, and I was trying to, at that time, track down the dosage data, where that came from, and, and I had trouble, like you said. I actually traced it back to Dr. Raymond Adams, who was a neurologist. Uh, I believe he's considered the father of neurology, one of the big people in, in the early in, early in the field. And he had put together the concept that Wernicke's was from, from thiamine and started giving people in the 1950s uh, thiamine for that. So I actually um, was able to connect with him. Uh, he had been retired for many years. And I asked him, well, where did, where, where did this dose of 100 milligrams come from? Well, he said, well, you know, when I was first putting this together, I, I needed to give a high dose of thiamine. So I figured 60 milligrams would be a good dose. And you know, we went from there. I said, well, 60, what about a hundred? He's like, oh yeah. The medical student I was with thought that 60 would be hard to remember. So let's just go with a hundred. So I said, okay. <laughs> so that's where the original dose of a hundred milligrams came from. It basically just was kind of made up to kind of have a high dose. And so then you move forward to this um, dose of, uh, in Europe, they started giving uh, 500 milligrams. And there was literally uh, at the time, there's been more now, but there's a case report that said, well, 100 wasn't good enough. 500 might've helped in this case. So then the theory was, well, 500 milligrams is better to cross the blood brain barrier. We can kind of go with that number. But the reality is, is that the dose is actually kind of unclear. Um, In World War II, when there was in the Japanese prison camps and people were deprived of thiamine and developed some of these symptoms, all they could get was a few milligrams to, to the soldiers. And that even seemed to help them. So, you know, it's really unclear. I guess um, what I generally say is that if someone doesn't have a manifestation of Wernicke's or is not in, you know, clear thiamine deficiency manifestation, the 100 milligrams seems to be sufficient, you know, recognizing the limitations of we didn't do pharmacokinetic and all that stuff. And when they do have highly suspicious or you actually think this person actually has Wernicke's, it is probably worth giving a higher dose with this uh, hypothesis that it, you know, crosses the blood brain barrier better, but I will just, you know, have the humility to say that this dosage is, is really, un- it, you know, there's a lot of unknowns about what the correct dose is. Oh, the last thing I'll mention too is, and I said to Dr. Adams at the time and the once a day dosing, he said, Oh, I had, I had no idea. I just went with that. But now we kind of know that the half-life is actually quite short so it's probably worth giving thiamine two or three times a day. Again, in the patients who you have an actual manifestation of, of thiamine deficiency disorder. Yeah. So that's generally the dosage. When I did, I had done some studies in septic shock, looking at, at thiamine helping for the, you know, the kind of the lactic acidosis component and everything. 
we actually used a dose of, you know, just to kind of make things more confusing of 200 milligrams twice a day. And the reason we chose that is that it was, again, I kind of, I wanted something that was high and I figured, you know, that's more than the hundred milligram and it wasn't too high to get the IRB or anybody concerned. So I, we went with 200 um, um, twice a day. Um, so anyway, um, that's kind of a, uh, a little discussion of the, the dosage illustrating that there's a lot of unknowns. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I believe that everybody listening to this will be a lot more comfortable in thinking about thiamine and hopefully more aggressive about giving thiamine to patients who might have nutritional disorders. Great. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. Thiamine deficiency is very common, especially in patients with alcohol use disorder. Up to 80% of those patients will have it, probably because it occurs so quickly, our stores are only two to three weeks. It's markedly undertreated as documented in uh, this article, especially in intensive care unit patients. We should expect thiamine deficiency when we have a neuropathy, when we have high output heart failure, or unexplained lactic acidosis with GI symptoms. The implications of this article are when in doubt and considering thiamine deficiency, treat empirically. The exact dose to use is unclear. We tend to give 250 milligrams three times a day for three days to replete the thiamine levels. However, there are no good studies on the correct dose. The most important point here is that think of thiamine deficiency in all alcohol use disorder patients or patients with decreased oral intake. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.